us what we should be doing with our children. And then verses 9 and on, it actually models it for us. And that's the best way to teach. Uh, those of us who are teachers know that modeling something is the best way to actually teach uh, rather than just to lecture. And so in this psalm, you have the lecture until verse 8, and then you have um, all these verses telling us exactly all the things about the Lord. Verse 4 says, um, it's talking about the things of God, the works of God, the laws of God, all those things about the Lord. And it says, we will not hide them from their children. And some translations say from our children. Um, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works, which he has done. And, um, and so here we have an instruction that we are to train our kids in the ways of the Lord. But it goes a little further than that. It says here that we are to um, tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord. The praises of the Lord. Okay, now that's different. That's not just telling kids about God. That's telling kids how to praise God, to praise God. That comes from the heart, not from the head. And throughout scriptures, we see that. We see that the Lord is interested in us telling our children um, how to love the Lord, how to praise the Lord, all these things that are not to do with just head knowledge about God. Now, it's important to tell kids about God. It's important to tell kids, uh, you know, the things he has done, the, the, the splitting of the Red Sea, all those wonderful things. But we need to tell them how to praise the Lord. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. Verse 6, very important verse for the Hebrews. Uh, it says, uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. They call it the Shema. And in the Bar Mitzvah and Bat Mitzvah, they have to say this by heart in Hebrew to become uh, Jewish, really. Uh, someone who converts to Judaism has to do the same thing. So it's a very important verse for Judaism. The next verse is a very important verse to us as Christians because it's a verse that the Lord Jesus um, quoted several times. And um, it is, You shall love the Lord your God with all your might, uh, with all your soul. I don't really know it by heart, but basically with all you've got. Okay. And then the next verse says... And you shall teach this to your children, walking by the way, sitting, standing, uh, in other words, 24-7. What is this that we are to teach our children? The verse before, love the Lord your God with all you've got. Love. Okay? So this is something the Lord teaches us, and that's very important for us to do, to teach our children. It is not just to teach them about God and of the Lord, but also to love the Lord. To love the Lord. Um, and how do we teach someone to love something? Um, that's a good question. I think the Portuguese taught me that. You see, the Portuguese have one thing they're passionate about. Unfortunately, they're not passionate about much else. But they're passionate about sports and in particular soccer. Okay? And so what I'm about to describe to you uh, is very generalized, but it's actually quite um, accurate and the majority of families in Portugal, and I know around the world, it's quite the same. But basically, you have a father who is the fan of a particular sports team. And he loves that team. And so he, um, when, when there's a, a game about to happen, uh, he, he knows when that game is going to happen. And the whole family knows when that game is about to happen. You know, he, next Thursday, 7.30, there's going to be a game with my team against some other team. Everybody knows it. Uh, he talks to his wife, hey, you better make sure we've got enough chips, popcorn, soda, everything we need. 
because, you know, and, and don't schedule anything. There's no, no phone calls because Thursday, my team is playing. Okay, and he's very excited about it. And when his team wins, there's tremendous jubilation in the house. The roof can hardly contain it. And, uh, and he's just rejoicing, and he's happy for days on end. And when the team loses, oh boy, you know, you can't even mention it to him. Um, and so he just grieves. He just grieves and mourns because his team has lost. When his team uh, has something negative, for example, on the business side, uh, maybe there was embezzlement in the higher-ups or... Um, they lost a deal trying to buy a player and another team actually outbid them and, and so they're not going to get that player which they really needed to have a good season. Oh, he mourns. And when there's a great victory, uh, the, the stats come out and they actually had a good year financially and they're in the black. Oh, he's really happy. Um, so he fills his home with paraphernalia. All around the house you can see banners and uh, other symbols and logos that belong to his team. And if a uh, the arch enemy of that team, I don't know if it exists here in, in America, arch uh, opponent teams. Uh, I think someone told me recently that that does exist. Someone told me that here in Florida, it's actually a team in New York. Is that right? Someone said that to me. That's accurate. So um, in Portugal, you, you have that around the world. You always have a team that's like the arch enemy of your team. And so if that's the case, then there better be no, no even color of that team, okay? So if you're from Benfica in Portugal and your opponent team is uh, sporting, who's green, there's to be no green in the house, okay? Um, but uh, this is what children in that home will grow up with. And 99% of the time, the children will be fans of that same team in the very same way the father was. And, and soccer's existed for 120-some years now. And so you actually have, in Portugal and other countries of the world, um, Fans that span like four generations, great-grandfather, grandfather, father, son, um, and they're all fans of that team, and, and they're very serious about it. Um, that is how you teach someone to love something. How many times in our homes are we excited because a meeting is coming up? How many times there's jubilation in the home because someone got saved, or maybe there was a visitor a non-saved visitor in the assembly, and there's jubilation. How many times is there mourning because maybe there was some gossiping going around that affected someone negatively, and there's mourning in the home because that has happened, or, or maybe the finances of the church are not that well, and there's just mourning uh, rather than maybe criticism. Um, how many of us fill our homes with paraphernalia that talk about he of whom we are fans? Um, and, and so, if children grow up in a home like that, they will learn to love the way the parents have loved. In other words, to teach your children to love the Lord your God with all you've got is to love the Lord your God with all you've got. That is the only way that you can teach them that. Uh, I remember uh, growing up uh, in my family, a Saturday evening was set apart. We couldn't go outside and play after dinner. Um, we couldn't uh, do many activities uh, because the next day was Sunday. It was the Lord's Day, and we had to be rested and prepared for that. And so I'm not saying this is something everyone has to do, um, but it, it, it certainly got across to me a point that my parents uh, taught me without maybe realizing it, is that the Lord's Day is important because the Lord of the Lord's Day is important. 
And so um, that's just one small example. Still in Psalm 78, um, verse uh, 7 says that they, the children, may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. It may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set his heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. This is what happens if you do not teach your children the praises of the Lord. Okay? Um, they become a rebellious people and um, they forget the works of God and they, set, they do not set their hope in God. This is serious. This is perhaps the most serious thing. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 17. It says, cursed is the man. Um, kind of tempted to go there so I don't misquote. Such an easy verse. But I get confused with the verse that I'm also going to quote. Jeremiah 17 says, cursed is the man who trusts in man. Cursed is the man who trusts in man. If we do not teach our children to love the Lord our God, to praise the Lord our God, then they will not set their hope in God. And they will set their hope or trust in man. And that comes with curse. And then in verse 7 it says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord uh, and whose hope is in the Lord. If you teach your children to love the Lord, there's blessing with that. There's blessing with that. And it's not an easy task. Because even if you do everything right, you have to take into account that they live in a context called this world. And if they go to uh, school, they are going to spend more time with their teachers than with you. If the teacher's philosophy of life is different than those taught in scriptures, your children are going to be more indoctrinated in the ways of Satan than in the ways of the Lord. So uh, I'm a big um, proponent, is that a word, uh, or promoter of Christian education. If you can't put your kids in a Christian school, if you can't homeschool, and you have no choice but to put your kids in a public school, please be aware that a public school is a church of secular humanism. Your kids are going to be taught things that are anti-Christian. Your kids are going to be taught values that are contrary to what you believe. And if you're going to put your kids there before God, you are responsible to be aware of what is going on in there. Make sure that teacher hates you because you're always on her back or his back, knowing what is going on, what is being taught, Read your kids' books. You will be surprised. Homosexuality being taught from kindergarten and so forth. Um, not to mention evolution and uh, so forth and so on. I remember my brother going to school. And uh, we had come from Africa. And uh, his English was more or less okay. But he thought he misunderstood his teacher because his teacher said that we came from monkeys. Um, and this is back in the 70s. He, he's my older brother. And, um, and so the teacher was having a hard time teaching him this concept. And so to simplify it in terms that he could possibly understand, she said, listen, your grandfather, your grandfather, your grandfather was a monkey, okay? And he got up very defiantly and says, excuse me, madam, but maybe your grandfather was a monkey, but I know my grandfather. He is no monkey. <laughs> so, um, but be aware of these stories that happen in the classroom. Okay, and many other things that are more subtle. You might want to um, understand better the philosophies of the world so that when your children come home and talk about them, you can identify them and counter with the scripture. This is a very, very important thing. Um, we don't want to lose our children, and we are. Statistically, uh, about um, 15 years ago, there was a research done by the Barner Group, uh, Barner group Research Group, um, and they asked 
teenagers of uh, evangelical families, believing families, how many of them consider themselves to be born-again Christians? And only 40% said that they consider themselves born-again Bible-believing Christians. That number should be alarming to anyone here. But what's more alarming is that 10 years later, they did the same research again, and the response was only 4% said that they consider themselves to be born-again Bible-believing Christians. Is Satan out to get your children? You betcha. That is his new front line. That is what he is out right now. That is his target, uh, and it has been for the past 20 years. If you remember 1990s, the Spice Girls came out. They targeted children, little girls. But the Spice Girls were not doing little girl things. They maintained the morality like they were targeting 20-year-olds, but they were targeting little girls. Um, and that's all across the board. Most of the movies, so many movies today now, are cartoon characters, uh, comic book characters. Uh, there's definitely a move towards the children. Um, it's sad, and I'm sure you heard this in the news a, few, uh, a couple of months ago, uh, somewhere in the south, I don't know if it was South Carolina or Virginia, um, where a child was prohibited from doing a show and tell because she wanted to share something that she had done in Sunday school. And, uh, and they prohibited her from doing it. Had she been Muslim, she probably would have been permitted to do it. So um, it's very, very near and dear to my heart. Uh, and when I say Christian education, you have to understand that is not synonymous with Christian school to me. Christian education should be happening in the home, first and foremost. It happens in church. Uh, it should be happening in a school, but it is not. Uh, Christian education is education that is Christian. And uh, we need to do that more today than ever because there's no such thing as neutral education. There's no such thing as a vacuum. Humans are built to learn, especially children. And if they're not learning from you, they're learning from someone else. So be very careful with that. Okay, uh, let me talk a little bit about Portugal. I've got prayer cards here. I'm not sure what to do with them. Every assembly I've been to, they said, you have to do it, so I finally got it done. So I probably should have talked to you earlier. Let me talk to you about Portugal a little bit. Um, and I, I have to speed up because they only gave me until 10.15 tonight. So, um, okay. <laughs> you won't be laughing an hour from now. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, Lusitania is Portugal's ancient name. That is what Portugal used to be called. Uh, some of you who are history buffs or who are older uh, will remember that Lusitania was the name of a cruise ship that was sunk by the Germans in World War I. And, um, oops, Americans were outraged by it because uh, until then America was following the, the Monroe Doctrine, which was kind of a, a principle America had that they would not get involved and anything outside the Americas. The United States would be the police of the Americas, but would not get involved in Europe or Africa or Asia, but especially Europe, because they had learned their lesson. Um, and so, um, so the Germans believed that the Americans were shipping weapons to England uh, secretly in passenger ships. And so the Germans warned the Americans that if Lusitania um, uh, cross the ocean again, that they would sink it. And they actually bought ads in the papers, New York Times and other papers, saying to people, if you go on this next trip, uh, we will sink it. Your life is in danger. Don't. And, um, but uh, America downplayed it, and, uh, and a U-boat did sink, uh, the Lusitania. And the significance of Lusitania is that it outraged the Americans, and it was what was used to changed the mentality of Americans to enter the war. Had it not been for Louisiana, probably the United States would not have entered the war, at least not that soon. 
So, uh, so you might have remembered that from history. But that ship was named after Portugal. And uh, the Romans, when they arrived in Portugal, uh, some hundred years before Christ, um, they noticed that the, the, the natives there, uh, they were a mountain people, um, worshipped many gods just like the Romans did. But they had a principal god, a main god, whose name was Lu. And Lu was the fire god. And the Romans thought, oh, this is cool. This is something we have in common because the Romans, in their Latin language, had a word that was similar, the word lux, which means light. And they thought, wow, lu, fire god, lux, light. It's almost the same thing. And if you, have to, if you imagine life without electricity, you don't have light at night unless you have a fire. Okay? So the Romans thought, wow, this is a really close connection. And so they called the, 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 the people there lux citanus, citizens of light. Okay? And the reason why I'm in Portugal, as well as other servants of the Lord, is to do our best uh, to be used of God so that there are more true citizens of light in Portugal, true citizens of the light of Jesus. That's what we want to see. Just to give you a little bit of context, some people get confused with Portugal and Papua New Guinea and Puerto Rico and other places. Um, Portugal is in Europe. Uh, this here is France. This is Spain. This is Portugal. Portugal is comprised of three main regions, the mainland, the Madeira Islands, and the Azores Islands, and these are actually further west. They're almost in the middle of the, Pacific, of the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, this island here has a very large uh, U.S. military base, which is very strategic and was very helpful in World War II, as well as in some, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, missions, uh, like when uh, the U.S. bombed Libya back in the 80s, uh, the ships, the airplanes flew out of there. Um, so uh, this just to give you an idea of Portugal. I live right about there in that peninsula, close to that peninsula, a little south of it. And this is Lisbon. And then at the very tip of that star right there is where uh, I do a lot of my work, just west of Lisbon. Okay. Uh, let me continue. Portugal's had a great and glorious past. There's no doubt about it. Uh, while the rest of the European countries were out fighting each other, England was fighting with France for a little, bit of, little strip of land on the, the French coast, the, the Spanish were fighting each other. There's about four kingdoms in Spain all fighting each other. By the way, Portugal did not become independent of Spain. I've had so many people ask me that question. Uh, Portugal existed 300 years before Spain existed as a nation. Uh, Spain was four different kingdoms all fighting for supremacy. And uh, it, it, it came down to two kingdoms. Uh, each had conquered another and became two big kingdoms. And, and it looked like that was what it was going to be. And then there was a marriage between the two. And so, uh, and they decided to call this new nation the same name that the Romans gave them, which was Hispania. And those, that royalty that got married are Ferdinand and Isabella. The same ones of Christopher Columbus. Most people don't know this. When Christopher Columbus sailed, Spain was a brand spanking new nation. So, um, and so Portugal had already been a nation for 300 years with the same borders that they have today. Um, okay, so Portugal, uh, while all these other nations were fighting each other, uh, Italy was many, many kingdoms. Germany was many, many kingdoms. Uh, all kind of, all these feuds. Portugal was not in conflict with anyone. Uh, they had come to a peace with the Spanish kingdoms. And so um, they did not have to worry about that. And so they looked out to the horizon and they said, I wonder what's out there. And so they built big ships uh, and, and they went. And they found, they discovered over two-thirds of the world for Europe. And that's actually quite an amazing feat because Portugal at the time had maybe less than half a million in population. That was a very small country even for those days. Uh, 30 years before Christ, 
Julius Caesar sent spies to the United Kingdom to scope the land. They came back and they estimated 4 million in England. That was 30 years before Christ. So for Portugal in the 1400s to have only half a million, it's a very small population. And so it's to their credit that they did um, do that. They had a vast empire uh, that went all around the world. Uh, the problem is that that was 500 years ago. It lasted 200 years. Um, and for the past 300 years, nothing has happened. The Portuguese have been tremendously oppressed by cruel uh, monarchs uh, and later by cruel dictators. And only for the past few decades has Portugal actually really had freedom, uh, but still struggling with poverty. And so um, it's just something that the Portuguese uh, really don't have much to be proud of uh, in any recent history um, of, their, of their time. Just to give an example of, of the Portuguese influence around the world, uh, they took their role as explorers very seriously uh, long ago. And so the dark green is where Portuguese is an official language. Okay, So you can see uh, various nations are small, so I, I circled them. I'm missing one I forgot to put here. Um, and so uh, a lot of these are just small nations. But um, the light green that you see is where Portuguese is uh, has, sorry, where there are over 100,000 native Portuguese-speaking people, okay? Now, where I grew up in New England, uh, there are over a million native Portuguese-speaking people, okay? So in many of these places, that is the case. Like in Germany, um, Luxembourg, I think one-fourth of the population is Portuguese. Uh, Hawaii, one-fourth of the population is Portuguese-descended. They don't speak Portuguese, but they descend from the Portuguese. Um, basically, Portuguese were everywhere and are everywhere. Uh, First of all, because of the explorations, but secondly, because of the immense oppression and poverty kind of forced them to emigrate. So the Portuguese actually speak of their own diaspora, is that how you say it in English? Uh, which is the, the scattering, okay? They, they were scattered all over, but they have retained their language and their culture. Um, okay, um, since the Portuguese have really nothing to be proud of for the last 300 years, they have a problem with identity. And, um, and so the Portuguese will more readily identify themselves with the Europeans than with Portugal itself. So they're very proud to be part of the European Union. They're very proud to be Europeans. We are European. Um, and sometimes they even extend that a little further out and say we're, we're proud to be humans, uh, citizens of the globe under the United Nations. Okay? Um, so to understand the Portuguese mentality today, you have to understand the European perspective. And a lot of what I'm going to say now can actually be applied to many or most Western European nations uh, with a few cultural differences here and there. But this is quite true across the board um, in European nations. That's the European Union flag, by the way. Um, I'm just going to give you a few examples. First of all, globalization. Globalization is a wonderful thing because you know, it's, it's all about community. We're one global village. Isn't that beautiful? That's amazing. It's wonderful. And so it's a good thing, globalization is. Socialism is a good thing, too, because socialism is all about humanitarianism. It's helping the next man. It's helping those who can't help themselves, providing health care for those who can't have health care, you know, creating bogus jobs in the government because people are unemployed. And, well, we'll just tax everybody up the nose and, and pay for this somehow. Um, but, you know, socialism is a good thing. It's humanitarianism. And so it's a good thing. Humanism is a very good thing, too, because it's all about being humane. 
and so uh, you're humane to your next man, to your fellow man, then that's, that's got to be a good thing. You know, Jesus was humane. He was a humanitarian, and so that's a good thing. What's sad about all this is that besides the Portuguese being drunk with these and other ideas, believers are too, okay? Just like I said before, if there is no, if, if someone is not teaching someone something, educating someone in some way, someone else is. And so believers who have a huge problem of not being taught the word, and I'll talk about that in a little bit, uh, not having that vacuum, they have accepted the world's uh, philosophies about things. And so you go to believers and everything I just said, they will defend vehemently, okay, believers, your brothers and sisters, um, which is very sad. Let me give you a few statistics. The population of Portugal is 10 million. Um, uh, I was at a missions conference yesterday and found out the Dominican Republic is also 10 million in size. Um, the 96%, the Roman Catholic Church claims is Roman Catholic, but the people themselves do not claim that for themselves. I know of other countries where they have high numbers like this because most people will say, yeah, I'm Catholic, but it's just nominal, they don't live it. Not so in Portugal. People will say, I am not Catholic. They don't want to be identified. As a matter of fact, people hate the fact that the Roman Catholic Church does this uh, and includes them as Catholics when they do not consider us as Catholics. Practicing, really, it's 14%. Okay, and most of that 14% are in the Azores Islands or in the very northernmost region of Portugal. And so um, it's, it's a very small number of actual practicing Catholics. The, uh, the rest of um, the Portuguese are really secular humanists, mostly atheist uh, or agnostic. Okay? And then there's a 4% mix of all kinds of things. And of that mix, we are less than 1%. Okay? And I need to identify evangelicals because I know that, that has a different definition in different circles. But by evangelical, I'm really using it in the Portuguese way, uh, which is right out of the Bible. The Bible uh, word for gospel is evangelion. And um, it really is uh, evangelical, therefore, is someone who uh, believes there is one God, that the Bible is God's inspired word, that Jesus Christ is God and came as a man to die on a cross for us. And it took upon himself our sins. And anyone who has faith in him and on his work, uh, and faith only, is saved. And so that is how I'm defining evangelical, okay? Um, so less than 1% are evangelical. Just to give you a little bit of a comparison, 13 Islamic nations have more evangelicals than Portugal, in some cases, many more, okay? Just to give you uh, an example of that, two of those Islamic nations actually have a similar population to Portugal. Cuba, which population is not too different from that of Portugal, has 8.8% um, evangelical. So a much higher number than Portugal. Uh, that is not to say that Cuba is all set. Uh, Cuba is far from the all set. 8.8 is a very small little number. And uh, we need to send more people there and, and pray for the Lord to save more people uh, in Cuba. Uh, but I just want to give you that for a, 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 a comparison. Okay. Why am I mentioning this? Because um, I, I feel the Lord has... Uh, convicted me to wherever I go to mention. This is a kind of a little parenthesis to this presentation. Um, but I've come to learn of a movement here in America. Uh, a few years ago, I lived in Colorado for a little bit, and I discovered this. And since then, I've been researching it, and I found out a lot about it. And I just feel that I need to share this with uh, as many people as I can and alert you to what I feel is a great danger. So there's this movement. They don't have a name, so I've given them my own name. And the name I've given them is the Unreached People's Movement. Okay? And on the surface, it's awesome. 
You know, let's, let's go to those places we haven't gone yet. Let's go into the Amazon jungle to tribes that have never seen civilization. Let's learn their language and preach the gospel to them and let's evangelize them. Uh, the mountains of northern India that also have tribes in there that have never been touched. Uh, let's go there. Let's go into Muslim countries because they've been so anti-Christian, they haven't allowed missionaries. Let's find out ways to get in there. Um, either by having professions and going there under the guise of a profession or through the internet or some way, and let's evangelize them. And I'm all for that. As a matter of fact, personally, I wish the Lord had called me to one of those kinds of missions because those are cool to me. I know I probably wouldn't think that way once I got into it, but um, it just feels cool going to backpack and hiking boots, you know, with a big machete, you know, cutting my way through the jungle to find some remote uh, tribe, you know, having to have a face-off with the witch doctor, uh, learning the language, witnessing, seeing the chief get saved and everybody get saved. It's awesome. And I'm, I'm actually making this funny, but actually, truly, I wish I could have that. I wish the Lord would call me to that, really. Um, the same with Muslim countries. I remember reading books as a kid about Muslims and, and oh, I'd love to go to a Muslim country and, and serve the Lord there and witness and see their eyes open to the truth. Um, but the reason why I'm against this group is that as I dug deeper, I found more and more things. And the first thing is I found on the website the principal um, propulsion engine behind all this is joshuaproject.org. And you're welcome to check them out and see if I'm lying. Uh, joshuaproject.org, if you go on the website, they actually do say that it's sinful to send missionaries anywhere else. And they use these statistics saying that, oh, we're sending all these missionaries to the small group of nations that have already been Christianized, whereas there's this huge group of people that only a small number of missionaries are being sent to. And you hear them use those kinds of statistics. Um, and so, and they have on the website a list of what are unreached peoples. Okay, so, uh, and anyone disagrees with them, then they're wrong. They have the list, you have to go buy their list. Uh, there's a program that was awesome. I loved it. I actually did it myself called Perspectives. I don't know if you did that here in this assembly. But um, it's, it's a program. You, it, there's a book you go through, and they bring speakers in. It's pretty cool. Um, but they have bought this whole idea, hook, line, and sinker, which is very sad. Um, and as I've gone through their website, uh, I found two things that I disagree with strongly. And it's affecting the work of the Lord very negatively. I know an assembly in Colorado that has actually stopped sending missionaries anywhere else, stopped supporting missionaries from anywhere else, uh, and in many cases, depending on who's in the prayer meeting, but they even won't pray for any missionaries other than those who are sent to this list that joshuaproject.org has made up. I was shocked when I first found out this, I got excited, but when I went to the website, I was shocked to not see Portugal in that list. Then I started checking out other nations that I know are not reached, and they're not on that list. So I did a little more digging. The two things I found out that I really dislike about this is, number one, that when I read the book of Acts, I find that the strategist behind missions is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the general who decides where the troops go. He sends Paul to Macedonia, not to where, wherever it was he wanted to go. I don't remember now. Um, and he sends Philip out into the desert, and he provides, and, and he... He is the one who is the strategist. He knows his strategy. He knows where he wants it. He knows where there are people who are more receptive to hearing the gospel. He knows where the resources will be better used. And he is the strategist, not man. And what this whole thing is about is man saying, this is our strategy. This is actually what they say, that we have to approach missions with the strategy. And that is true to a point, but uh, not to the global um, point that they're trying to do, which I believe belongs only to the Holy Spirit. The second thing is, as I dug deeper, 
Because I, I, was, I was flabbergasted uh, or confused and confounded by these statistics because they didn't match what I knew in reality. And so I, I dug deeper. How do they come up with these statistics? And as I dug deeper, I found out how they were defining things. And in so doing, I discovered there was a whole very thick, very solid, ecumenical basis for all of this. In other words, they consider Roman Catholics to be reached. Okay? Now, I love Roman Catholics. I wouldn't be in Portugal if I, if I didn't. Um, but the Roman Catholic Church, its official doctrine, uh, is wrong. It's unscriptural. The Apostle Paul says, if anyone changes this gospel, let them be anathema. That is the highest level of curse that could be. And the Roman Catholic Church says that you must do works, you must do the sacraments to be saved. I was talking with uh, a brother here in Florida, I'm not going to mention a name. Uh, he's not with our assemblies anymore, but uh, the rest of his family is. And he kind of has an intellectual aura, or tries to have. And so he was trying to convince me that, no, Catholics are Christians. He knows many Catholics who are Christians, just like us, and it's all good. He also has met a little bit in the charismatic movement, and there is the charismatic Catholics as well. Um, but uh, so he wanted to argue with me about this, and he felt so secure that I, I you know, I do struggle with the flesh sometimes. So I, I knew exactly where he would go, and I knew how to combat that argumentation. And what really was the clincher was purgatory. He says, "Do they still believe in purgatory?" He says, "Oh yes." I said, "Then they believe in work salvation, because what purgatory is all about is you didn't work hard enough here to earn your salvation, so you got to go to an in-between place, and there you finish earning your salvation." And at that, he closed his mouth, and so. This is deceptive, and it's leading people to hell. And many of these people in these countries have never heard the gospel. If you go 30 miles from the coast of Portugal in, Portugal is about 200 miles wide. You go 30 miles in, and you've got all these villages and all these hills, tens of thousands of them, that have never, ever heard the gospel. They have only heard the false religion of Roman Catholicism. They must do works to get saved. They've only heard about the sacraments. They have... Most of them don't even possess the Bible, have not even heard the Bible, because that's not what is preached on the pulpits. And so this is a nation that is unreached. And the same can be said of Spain, the same can be said of Italy, um, and then also Eastern Orthodox. This unreached people's movement also considers Eastern Orthodox to be saved. They're Christian. We don't need to go there anymore. You know what? This made me remind me um, of something that happened in the mid-90s. Some of you might remember. There was a document uh, kind of agreement called Catholics and Evangelicals Together. How many of you remember that? Some very famous people signed it and then they retracted their signature because there was an outcry among evangelicals about it. But the document was basically trying to stop evangelicals from witnessing to Catholics and Catholics from witnessing to evangelicals. Let's just make an agreement. We're on the same page. We agree on abortion. We agree on homosexuality. Hey, let's stop trying to proselytize one another. Let's just do that, huh? We're, we're really the same, okay? Uh, frankly, um, I think it was a one-sided agreement because I don't remember the last time a Catholic tried to witness to me. Anyone here? Yeah. So, um, so that went down the drain fast, okay, thankfully, because the, the body of Christ reacted. I don't know if they would react today. I hope they would. But uh, this is what I see in the Unreached People's Movement and in joshuaproject.org uh, is exactly that. Let's not go to Catholic countries. Let's not go to Eastern Orthodox countries. They're already Christianized. That sounds very much like Catholics and, and evangelicals together. And so I just want to alert you to this. Um, you can do the research yourself. You can prove me wrong if you'd like. But it really does bother me. Um, I really want those unreached peoples to be reached. Uh, the tribe in the Amazons, the Muslim village in Nigeria, the village in Portugal. 
the city in America. I think there's unreached pockets of peoples here in the United States now that if you talk about Moses, they say, who? Is he a rock star? Okay, so uh, we need to let the Holy Spirit lead and, uh, and go. So let me, let me go on. I only have two hours left, so. Okay, um, I just mentioned this. Many counties, parish is a British term. Uh, English is the common language in Europe, but it is British English. And so a civil parish is kind of like a township. It's smaller than a county. For example, in a county I live in has 11 parishes. Um, and it, it differs from, from county to county. But we have many counties and parishes that have never, ever had an evangelical presence. Okay? Never heard the gospel. Never had an evangelical pass through even. Okay? So it is a great need. Let me talk about assemblies in general, uh, or more specifically, actually. Um, we used to be the largest evangelical group in Portugal, among that 1%. Uh, now we are the smallest just in the region where I live. There used to be seven assemblies. You have to understand, when we talk about assemblies in Portugal, we're talking about four or five people, average. Um, a very large assembly would have maybe 25. I think there's only one assembly that kind of has 80. I say kind of because th those are all believers. The 80 will come up to the, the ministry meeting. But um, that, that's, that's a mega church in Portugal. Okay? So, um, so uh, when people hear me talk, oh, so there's a lot of churches in Portugal. Well, there are, but you know, where two or three are gathered, that's kind of the idea. Um, so uh, where I uh, am living, there used to be seven assemblies. Today there are none. Okay? Uh, that's typical all over Portugal. There's no difference with other groups. So if you walk into uh, a church, evangelical church, and you didn't see the sign on the door, your guess is as good as mine as to whether you just walked into a Brethren Assembly, a Baptist church, a Nazarene church, an Assemblies of God, or a Presbyterian church. Because uh, they're, they're all the same. You walk in in the same format, the same teaching. There's really no difference uh, between them. Okay? And that's because of the lack of teaching that I've already mentioned to you. Among the young, there's a, a, something of a shame of being Brethren that I don't understand. Of all the groups... We are the group with the least scandal. We are the group that actually did the most as far as evangelizing in generations past. Um, and so I'm not really sure where this comes from. Uh, there's no activity in the assemblies, and this is really sad. There's no Bible studies. Um, and, you know, there's exceptions. I'm giving you a lot of general things here. There are exceptions here and there. But for the most part, the majority of assemblies, there's not a single Bible study to study the Word of God in depth. Um, there's no evangelism happening. As a matter of fact, I was there and I said, Let, let's go witnessing. You know, there, there was a group of people from various assemblies for a little youth conference. And I said, let's go witnessing, man. We've got all these people here. Let's grab some tracks. Let's hit the doors. And they said, no, 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 no. We can't do that. Uh, and I, I, I said, well, why not? And, and they said, because the Jehovah's Witnesses do that. Okay. And they won't. They won't. Um, and so um, it's taken a lot. I've done some open-air campaigns, but uh, very few people come with me. Uh, they just don't see the reason, that, what the big deal is. Uh, there's no Sunday school for children. There's no youth group for the teens. Um, really, there's just no activity. There's only a Sunday morning service. Um, and that Sunday morning service is usually uh, just a, a devotional-type sermon, something like what you would get from reading Our Daily Bread, Okay. Uh, a little encouragement, spiritual encouragement, nothing that goes deep, okay? And whether you, you, you preach that in a Brethren Church or Baptist or Nazarene or whatever, it's all good. Uh, it's, it's good, okay? And that's, that's about as far as they get. Um, 
Lord's Supper is not practiced every week. In most assemblies, they do it once a month like everybody else. And usually it's an addendum to the meeting. At the very end of the meeting, they'll just quick 10 minutes, pass out the elements, see you next week, and it's a done deal. So uh, this is the state of the assemblies uh, there in Portugal. Um, let me continue here. A big part of this is because there's a lack in leadership um, there in the assemblies. Um, they're not well trained. A lot of times elders are chosen not because of their godly character or their qualities. Many times this is the guy that's reliable. He, he's on time opening the door. You know, so let's make him the elder. Um, as a matter of fact, I, um, I could tell you many stories, but um, I, I remember sitting in the Lord's Supper and the elder that was distributing, and in many assemblies it's just one elder and, and they call him pastor. Um, and he's distributing the elements and he is drunk. He is stumbling. He almost can't do the job. And, um, and so um, another story kind of related is I went to um, a conference of elders. I think it's the only one in my 18 years in Portugal. And, uh, and you know how it is. It's the same as here. You know, there's a, the meetings in the morning. Then there's a meal for everybody in the long tables, right? Uh, and then there's some meetings in the afternoon. And, uh, and so we're sitting down for lunch. And the only beverage that they, uh, the only drink that they offered was wine, Okay. So I'm not going to discuss whether it's good, bad. I'm going to leave you guessing uh, what I think about it. But in any case, at that point in time, I didn't want to drink wine. I wanted to drink water. I'm a waterholic, literally. I can drink several gallons a day. Um, I'm now learning that that might not be good for my health. But um, I wanted water. So I asked one of the ladies that was serving. I said, can I have some water? And she said, sure. And I said, you know what? I'm probably going to ask for it again. So if you could give me a pitcher, maybe that would be better, and then I don't bother you again. She said, sure, no problem. She went to get it. And then there was a, a, an elder sitting diagonally across from me, and wow, he just started attacking me uh, with fire and brimstone. He was just angry with me, uh, saying, there's nothing wrong with drinking wine. Jesus drank wine. It's just you can't get drunk. And he just went through all the arguments that I already know. I know the arguments on both sides. My parents are teetotalers, and um, I've got friends that drink in, in you know, moderation, all that. I, I know all of that. And I try to tell him, yes, yes, I know, I know. Let's just eat and talk about pleasant things. And he wouldn't let go of it. And so he just kept bombarding me for an hour and a half uh, during the meal with that. And I guess, you know, I'm sinful. Um, and uh, the Bible says you shouldn't keep a record of wrongs. But I, I was watching and I was keeping a record. He drank two bottles in his anger and enthusiasm. He just kept pouring. And he went through two bottles all by himself. And he was drunk at the end. So, um, and what is my surprise? He is the speaker right after lunch. And he's on the, on the platform, and he actually keeps his alcohol well, which tells me that it's probably not a novelty for him. And he um, wasn't stumbling too much, but he was slurring his words a lot. And there's a lot of fire and brimstone coming from him, but it wasn't from the Spirit of the Lord. I'm quite sure of that. So, uh, so elders are not necessarily the most godly people. You talk with them, and there will be curse words and swears and all kinds of things. Uh, they'll be talking about how they swindle somebody in their local shop, most elders are bivocational. They also have a job. Uh, Christians just can't afford to support a full-time brother. Um, and so uh, they'll cheat on their taxes and boast about it. All those kinds of things. And this is the leadership that the believers have there. Um, some of the issues that are prevalent among uh, the leadership there is a, a certain level of pride. There's definitely an inferiority complex. Um, a lot of them can barely read. Uh, if someone comes along that knows a little bit about scriptures, there's some jealousy involved there. 
uh, definitely an inferiority complex. They're very territorial. Some younger men want to do something, want to help. Um, they push them down. They don't let them uh, do that. Um, and in spiritual things, there's a lot of indifference as well. So uh, there's brethren popes, which is when there's an elder, not only has authority over his own assembly, but even sometimes assemblies in the region. Uh, many believers are apathetic, and apathy is the big problem in Europe, in Western Europe especially. Uh, apathy is a big problem there, okay, especially concerning spiritual things. Um, but the interesting thing is that the people of God are hungry for the word. They're children of God, just like you are. They love the Lord. They were born of the Spirit, and they are children of the Father, and they take after their Father, and they want to learn more of the Father, but there's no one to teach them. I used to be critical of the, of the leaders. How could they have failed? You know, look at the, the, the chaos of the church. And then I realized, you know what? They experienced the same thing. They had those kinds of leaders. No one taught them. And so, you know, you go through all these things. Oh, man, the church is horrible. Bad Christians. It's not that. It's that no one has taught them. No one has modeled for them the enthusiasm for the word of God. No one has come and said, oh, look at this passage. I never got this before. Did you see this? You know, I was here on Friday. I shared a little with the teenagers. And Brother Christian came up to me afterwards. He shared a verse with me. I went home and I, I opened the Bible and reread it and reread it. I was like, oh, that's so cool. I never saw it that way before. You don't have that in Portugal. And it's very, very sad. And so the believers want, they want to be fed. But many of them don't even know they want to be fed um, because they've never experienced it. And I'm going to tell you just a couple of stories uh, to exemplify this. Um, um, where am I going to start here? Uh, some years ago, a Brazilian brother came over. Uh, he was actually a supreme justice in Brazil. A very respected man. He's an assembly man. He's an elder in his assembly in Sao Paulo. Um, he's very respected for various reasons. And he went to visit Portugal, and he saw this all. And he was astonished by it all. The, the assembly movement is doing much better in Brazil than in Portugal. And so... Uh, he got the elders together from the greater Lisbon area and says, listen, this cannot be. You can't have assemblies. and There's no Bible studies. This is, this is important. This is vital for an assembly. You have to teach the people. You have to dig into the word. And so he convinced them to do once a week a Bible study where all the assemblies from the greater Lisbon area would get together and they would have this Bible study. And so he set it up. It started. And, and he went back to Brazil. So it was a few years later that I had come into the picture and they invited me to be a part of that. First of all, I had never heard of it. I'd been in Portugal some four years and had never heard of it. And so I said, well, I need to meet with you and, and find out what this is all about before I say yes or no. And so they met with me and they said, well, well, all you do is this, this, and that. And basically, it was just the same old devotional level teaching, which is not really teaching. Okay? And so I said to them, no, I, I don't think that's what Dr. Gonçalves intended when he started this. I know him personally. He's a good friend of my parents. Um, I said, I'm sure he meant for us to go deeper. It was, oh, you can't do that because the people can't handle it. Well, the reality is they probably couldn't handle it themselves. And I'm not saying this to, to offend. Um, and so I said, no, 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 no. If I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this my way. Um, and I was younger. Let me just say this. And so I said, I want there to be tests. I want there to be scripture memorization. I want there to be uh, discussions. I want us to get deep into the word. I want us to go verse by verse, phrase by phrase. Where there's confusion about a word, let's go into the Hebrew and the Greek and figure it out. And this is what I want. I want us to dig and, and, and just 
love the word and, 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 and uh, be hungry for it and, and, um, and not be satisfied until we, we figured out that portion, then we move on. And it says, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. You do that, you're going to lose everybody. You know, we've been down to about five people in all the nine assemblies of greater Lisbon area. We've done all the five people come to this. You do that, we're going to come down to zero. I said, well, this is the only way I know how to do it. So a few weeks later, we started, and I, like I said, I was young and full of energy, and I passed out the syllabus. I had what we're going to study each Friday, uh, when there would be tests, papers due, uh, what the margins are supposed to be, all that kind of stuff, the scripture memorization. And to be honest with you, the five that were there, and there were five, they were like Google-eyed, looking at each other. They became white-faced, you know, looking at each other. And I saw that reaction, and I thought, oh, man, they were right. Next week, there's going to be nobody. It's going to be on my head that this whole project stopped. Dr. Gonzalez is going to call me from Brazil. What have you done? Um, the next week, there were 30 people. The week after that, 50. And those numbers maintained themselves because they're so hungry for the word of God. They didn't even realize it. They said, wow, we never saw the treasures that are in here. Why hasn't anyone taught us? And so this went on for several years. And they just loved it. And they didn't mind being tested. And they, they got competitive and they, they got excited about it. And what was your grade? Oh, my grade was this. And it was just cool to hear them in years to come quoting scriptures they learned at that time that now is embedded in their heart for life. And this is what is missing in Portugal. So I just wanted to share with you, the Portuguese believers are not evil. They're just starving children that have no one that will give them bread. And so we need to pray for them. Just again on Europe, because it's so important to understand Europe today to understand Portugal and really any Western European nation. Europeans are big on unity and humanism. And let me just tell you, humanism is not humanitarianism. Humanism is a religion. It is a religion in which humanity is God. Man is God. Okay, that is what humanism is. Uh, it is not about being good and humane to other human beings. And humanism is anti-Christian. And you can actually read the Humanist Manifesto, um, and it, you, you'll be shocked. I encourage you. There's actually three Humanist Manifestos. Uh, one in 1913, one was from 1940-something, and then one was made in the year 2000. The reason why they kept revising is because they're very optimistic. Mankind is so awesome, you know. And then World War II happens. So they have to revise their manifesto and, and so forth. So, but it is a religion. If you read the manifesto, you'll be shocked as to how specifically anti-Christian it is. Um, and so, uh, but the, the Europeans are drunk with humanism. Um, some of the issues among Europeans, and even Americans go and visit, even as tourists, some of them will note these things. And they'll say, oh man, they're kind of cold. Uh, there's an apathy, there's a coldness, there's an arrogance. There's a European arrogance. Um, they do feel they are morally superior to the rest of the world. Uh, they certainly feel they are morally superior to us Christians, which to us sounds like, um, like you know, twisted, because uh, we have the word of God. We're following God, who is the absolute standard of morality. But to them, that's not the case. Uh, we don't embrace homosexuals, so we are morally inferior. We don't believe that a woman has her moral right to do with you once with her body and kill an unborn child. And so we are morally inferior to them. So they really see themselves as the, the moral standard the whole world should follow. They see America as a young nation that has not learned many things yet. And they see themselves as the example America should follow. They've learned through very hard things that war is bad. And so uh, America is a warmongering country that, that, that still hasn't learned that. They should follow our moral example. Of course, when there's oil at risk in Libya, then France is very readily to get involved. Um, but in any case, that's how they see themselves. And there's a certain arrogance 
that goes with that. They really believe in evolution, and they really believe they are at the top of the ladder uh, of evolution. At the same time, there's a fear of passion. Uh, Europeans, by, by and large, again, there's exceptions, uh, they do not like to display emotion. Um, now, there's, there's exceptions, a birthday party, and you're drinking a little too much, and you're all very happy and dancing and so forth. Um, that, that, that would be an exception to this rule. But in, in normal everyday life, they avoid uh, any show of emotion. Any show of emotion is a show of weakness. And they like to be objective and to look uh, intellectual and to sound intellectual. And many of them are very intellectual. But they have this fear of passion. Here's the problem. Our God is a God of passion. Our God is infinite. By definition, he is infinite in all ways. That means that his love, it's infinite. He loves passionately. He doesn't love in any other way. Look at what he's done with us. He loves us passionately. But his justice is also infinite. And his wrath is a passionate wrath as well. God is all about passion. If you read the Bible from cover to cover, you'll find out that God communicates to us through the heart. It is always through the heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Good. Who just said that? <laughs> awesome. Okay. I memorized that verse when I was 10 years old, lying in the hospital. And it helped me carry through. Um, very good you have that in your heart. Trust in the Lord your God with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Europeans, it's the opposite. They lean on their understanding. They do not trust in the Lord with any of their heart. They've closed their hearts. they put barriers over their hearts. They are truly people with hearts of cold stone. Um, and they feel that that is the best way to be. They feel that that is good. Um, they are growing more and more anti-American. I'm going to skip this a little bit because of time. Um, but the, the leftist uh, movement is growing stronger and stronger, especially with this economic crisis. Um, and so uh, there's a growing anti-American uh, sentiment. And like I said before, everything that's going on in the world is going on in the church as well, unfortunately. And this is affecting American missionaries who have a lot to offer in many cases. Uh, but the Europeans kind of say, oh, yeah, it's just American, um, which is unfortunate. Uh, the church follows the world's cues. I remember one year the UN declared it the year of tolerance. I didn't even know the UN declared years of things uh, until I got there. Um, UN news is always on the news. UN, all this stuff that we never hear of here, that's on the news every night. Uh, there in Europe, they're very much uh, involved with the world and what's going on in the world and things that bring the world closer together and all the leftist uh, movements and uh, things that are going on. And so the UN declared it the year of tolerance and for a whole year, Wherever I went to in different assemblies, the elders and speakers were speaking about tolerance. Uh, unfortunately, they were not speaking about tolerance uh, from the scriptures or tolerance from the dictionary, but tolerance according to secular humanism. You see, there's a difference. The dictionary definition of tolerance is that there's something that I can't stand, I don't like, but I bear with it. You know, Jason's over there, he's got that watch. I hate that watch. Oh, my land, I can't see it. It's an aberration. It's like, oh, I can't stand it. But, you know, he's my brother. I'll, I'll bear with it. That's tolerance, okay? By the way, I think it's cool. <laughs> um, but in any case, it's huge. I could see it from over here. <laughs> okay. Um, maybe he just wears that watch when there's a preacher that speaks too much. Uh, <laughs> um, but that is what is tolerance. There's something you can't stand that you don't like, that you dislike or even hate but you bear with it. That is the definition in the dictionary for tolerance. But secular humanism does not use that definition. They have their own definition. 
To be in tolerance is to embrace, to accept, in whole. And if you don't, then you're not tolerating. Basically, you've got to convert to their perspective, to their point of view, or you're not tolerant. Hmm. Nazi Germany. Reminds us of other things, doesn't it? Um, I remember a few months ago, Kirk Cameron, uh, I guess as a believer, and, uh, and he was at an interview. And later I read this on the internet. And apparently, when these interviews, you know, these talk show hosts, the questions are prepared beforehand by each other's agents. And so the, the interviewee walks in already knowing what the questions are going to be, and they're ready to answer them. And in this interview, the interviewer broke protocol and asked a question that was not in the agreed questions. And it was about homosexuality. And Kirk Cameron stumbled a little bit. It was live television. And so he said, um, he gave a great answer. He gave an answer of tolerance. He says, you know what? I disagree with homosexuality. I do believe it's a sin, as is stated in the scriptures. But I have friends who are homosexuals, and I love homosexuals. Um, I think it's bad for society. But, um, and, and he went on. He, he gave a very good answer that, by the dictionary, was an answer of tolerance. He didn't like it, but he bore with it, and he was okay, and he even loved them uh, in Christ Jesus. Um, well, for the next few weeks, I don't know if any of you remember that, but he was crucified in the media over that. And various movements, even governmental departments, that this is intolerable, this can't be. And I just kept thinking during those weeks, wow, do we have the thought police already? You can't even believe what you want to believe, that you're going to be crucified. Um, and so that's the world's notion of tolerance. And unfortunately, that is what we learned in church for a year in the assemblies. And, um, and so uh, it's unfortunate. Let me move along here. Um, in Portugal, I told you there's 10 million people. Uh, one million of those are not Portuguese. They're immigrants. And it is believed that there's another million that's off the records because they're illegal and they're there. So of the 10 million, possibly it's really 11 million, and 2 million are foreigners. Okay, they're immigrants. And what happens is that Portugal is an easy country to get into. The borders, the customs are lax. Not like Northern Europe. It's very hard to get into Northern Europe, especially by plane. Um, they they they've have trained people that can tell if this person's really a tourist or if he's coming here to work and stay. Um, but in Portugal, you just walk right through the airport and walk outside. And so Portugal's become a gateway for immigrants that come from Africa, from South America, from Eastern Europe. And, um, and so what happens is they, they think they're going to go to Europe through Portugal. And then with it, inside the European Union, there's no boundaries. It's like here, you, you travel, you, you drive from, um, from Florida to Georgia to South Carolina. There's no border patrols uh, between the states. It's that way now in Europe. And so they think, well, we'll go in through Portugal, and then we'll make our way north where the salaries are much higher. And so what happens is when, by the time they arrive in Portugal, they have used up everything. and They have no more money to continue. And then many of them are illegal. They can't get good jobs. They have to do under-the-table jobs. And they're essentially stuck there for life. Um, some of them get there through human trafficking, where there's a person who says, you don't have the money to pay the ticket, which is 900 euros, um, about $1,000. Uh, so you pay me $10,000, and I'll get you there. And it'll be on credit. And so then they go to the, to the nation that they're going to, in this case, Portugal. And now there's usually a representative in that country of that man. Uh, some of these are well-organized networks. And now they have to work like slaves and give their money to that man. Or they could get a finger cut off or a family member killed or whatever. So we have that as well. Interestingly, interestingly, most of these immigrants end up in one spot in Portugal, just west of Lisbon. There's a train line that goes from downtown Lisbon all the way to Sintra Mountain. I bumped into a lady um, at a Walmart um, here in Miami, actually. It was a few days ago. She was from Madrid. 
And so she says, oh, where did you work? I said, well, close to Sintra Mountain. Oh, I've been there. A beautiful place. Well, it's got palaces and castles. It's beautiful. Tourists love it. But you go down the mountain, and you literally go down the mountain. And that valley between the mountain and downtown Lisbon is about 30 kilometers, about 24 miles or so uh, of train line. It's just abject poverty. It's buildings upon buildings. It's the most densely populated area of Western Europe. Um, it is where there's the most crime, most prostitution, uh, children at risk. There's kids roaming the streets. Um, it's just horrible. And, and the Portuguese are doing very little about it uh, because that European perspective. They look down their nose at these people. These people are inferior. Um, how do Europeans deal with, with things that are different? They see them as weird. They're weird. If you're different, you're weird. Um, that's bad and that's wrong. They don't like it. When I was a kid, we'd visit Portugal. We'd go there for little vacations once in a while. And I was very introverted. Well, Portuguese are very sociable. So they, I would hear them talk to my parents and sometimes even my older brother, and they would say, you know, you've got to put him in a mental asylum or something. He's just quiet. He's not like us. He's different. He's weird. Okay? That's basically the European perspective um, in general um, about things that are different. So when it comes to immigrants, they are seen by the Europeans as different, and that's automatically a bad thing for them. Uh, as inferior, and in general, they're a nuisance. Whether you're talking about the Turks in Germany or the Romanians in France or the Africans in Portugal, um, wherever you go in, in, in Europe, they see these foreigners, they accept them in their countries because they think philosophically they have to, they should. It's the morally right thing to do, and we're the moral standard for the world. But that's what they put on paper. In reality, the, the European people uh, just avoid them. You just don't want them. Okay, they're in a train talking, and an uh, immigrant walks in, and it's obvious it's an immigrant. They'll stop the talking. Um, so uh, they just see it as a nuisance. But how does God see these people? First of all, they've bottomed out. They've come to Europe because they just couldn't make it wherever they were before, and they're hoping to make it here. These are people who come from countries where they know Satan's work firsthand. Many of them have seen demon possession. Many of them have seen the power of a witch doctor or some other medium. And so they come having an understanding of what is that they live within a spiritual realm. And really, it's been a pleasure to work with them. The past two and a half years, I've been working with uh, immigrants a lot. After 18 years of working with Europeans and just having that wall there all the time and unimpassioned and, and not wanting to do anything with emotion, suddenly I, I've started working with these people, and it's amazing. They're open. They're receptive to hearing about the Lord's things. They know they need help. They have a tremendous respect for religious leaders. If I were to talk to a European, a Portuguese on the train, oh, what are you doing? I say, well, I'm a missionary, or I'm the principal of a Christian school. Oh, well, that's nice. And they'll look out the window and ignore me the rest of the time. Uh, whereas a, an immigrant from South America or Africa will say, oh, really? You know, I, 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 I just I don't know what to do with my life anymore. Uh, I know there's a God. I know I'm not good, and I have to work harder, and I just don't know what to do. And I can tell you, you know what? You don't have to work harder. Jesus Christ did it all for you. And they listen. And they're respectful. It's just, it's wonderful. You know, remember I told you I'd love to go to the Amazons? <laughs> the Lord brought the Amazons to Portugal. No. Um, so it's a wonderful thing. Now, my heart really is for the Portuguese and the Europeans. I haven't given up on them. I really want the Lord to teach me how to break through that ice. You know, but it's been nice to minister also to the immigrants uh, lately. There are people who want to improve. They have passion, but they want more passion. They want passion directed in the right direction. And that's wonderful. They want freedom. And, and Jesus is in the business of liberating people. It's just wonderful. Um, let me talk about my work specifically, and I am almost done. I'm going to skip this whole part about Christian education um, to save some time. This is an American train. Someone pointed that out to me uh, in the presentation I did not long ago, but it's a cool picture, don't you guys think? So... Um, but the, the central line is what they call that area 
from Lisbon to Cintra Mountain. They call it the Cintra Line, the Cintra Train Line. It's a dire situation. I've already explained it to you, but it, it's really bad. Every night, there's a murder or more on that line, okay? Uh, when I used to visit Portugal as a kid, uh, there'd be like a murder a year, and it would shock the country. Now there's murders every night, and it's always on the Cintra Line, okay? Um, and, and prostitution and human trafficking and uh, drugs, uh, theft, uh, even in daylight, it's just a bad area. Um, and so the Lord placed a school, a Christian school, right there. And uh, I've been the principal of that school for the past two and a half years. Uh, and it's been um, a privilege, and it's been very difficult at the same time. There's tremendous trials um, uh, in, in this school. Um, uh, okay, um, really quickly. Um, the world without Christ... The world without the influence of Christ, or even without a heritage, a post-Christian heritage of Christ, is a very dark world. When you watch shows like Xena and Hercules and other movies that supposedly take place in the past, and they have the same concerns and values, and, oh, i got to save my kid, that's not true. Those societies, before they were influenced by Christianity, were dark and evil. We have no idea how dark the heart of man can go with demonic influence. I saw a documentary not long ago about India, and there are still pockets in India where they practice Hinduism in full. And what does that mean? That means that when your daughter reaches puberty, you take her by the hand, the mother, and walks her to the temple, and the priests announce it to all the temples in the region, and they all come to rape her for an entire day. And the mother knows this, and she leads her because she thinks that's a good thing. It's a dark world without Christ. You have no idea. And what happens in this school is that these people come from these countries where there's this darkness. And it's just tremendous. I have gone to my office to cry many times because I can't believe that these little kids have such a level of evil knowledge that they do. Things that have occurred in, in the bathroom that I can't even repeat here. Kids trying to stab each other. We had a kid almost stabbed in another kid's eye. Um, just tremendous, tremendous difficulties. Um, Christ is powerful and his word is liberating. Excuse me, I hate this. <laughs> um, about eight years ago, I started noticing I choke up much more easily. I don't know what's going on. But, um, but it, is, it is warfare. It is warfare. And, um, and you don't know the privilege you have, even here in America. Uh, maybe God hasn't called you to go to Africa, but God's brought Africans here. He's brought Arabs here. He's brought South Americans here. And it, I think it's the biggest neglect of the church in America is neglecting the immigrants that God has brought here. It's a mission field in and of itself. And, and so the Lord's privileged us with that. Um, last year, last school year, I lost nine full-time teachers throughout the school year. And I didn't even count the part-time teachers I lost because it is so hard. I've had teachers that left in the middle of the day without even telling me. I would just hear the chaos from my office and I would rush over there. What's going on? Where's your teacher? And, uh, oh, she left. I said, what, you mean she went to the bathroom? No, no, she left. What, she was sick? No, she left. And in some cases, the frustration and the agony was so great that the teachers did not even um, call me or email me or text me. They didn't answer when I called or emailed. Um, and so uh, we just lost them. And then I would have to take on uh, their positions. We have no secretary. I am not a secretary. Um, and so uh, I would stay up late at night trying to work, uh, catch up, grading, correcting, doing secretarial work as well. Um, the past two and a half years, I've averaged about three hours of sleep, um, and it has its effect. And so I've actually uh, pretty much stopped my teaching ministry in the assemblies. And as you heard, that is the single most 
need that the assemblies have. And the Lord has gifted me with the teaching um, ability. And, uh, and so it, it's really sad. Um, all this to say, um, yeah, we've had no support from local assemblies. We need staff. We need workers. Uh, that is what we need more than anything else. I'm going to skip the, oh, I forgot these. These are some pictures of the school. Uh, the Lord blessed us with um, a nice aristocratic estate that's walled in in the middle of concrete and glass. Uh, there's this old, uh, this was built in 1670. The landlady was fighting breast cancer at the time. And I think that she gave us a price she gave us, thinking she was doing a favor to God and hoping for a favor in return. Um, We've shared the gospel with her many times, but we're basically paying for this estate what you would pay for a luxurious um, apartment in Lisbon. Very, very cheap. Um, and just to show you the inside, um, everything's just nice. This is a classroom. Our classes are completely in English. Everything is in English. Two reasons. First of all, we inherited a school from Americans. They just couldn't manage it. Uh, and so all the curriculum was in English. For us to buy all the curriculum in Portuguese would cost us $50,000. And so we, th we, we thought, you know what? Let's stick with this and see what happens. And then we saw what happened. It was actually an attractant because the business language in Europe is English. Parents want their kids to learn English. So uh, the best way to learn a language is by immersion. And so in our school, it's English by immersion. And, and little kids, they learn fast. Within a few weeks, they're speaking English. The older kids take a little longer. Uh, and I, I warn parents. I say, you know, probably the first two quarters, they're probably going to fail because they're learning English. But we'll make up for it later on. Um, so if you feel the Lord's calling to come to Portugal and be a teacher, you don't need to learn Portuguese initially. You can do your job. Uh, in English, uh, it's of course good to learn some Portuguese to function outside. Uh, but even then, everyone about 45 years and younger can speak uh, English, can communicate in English. Just some kids. These two are from Brazil. This one's from Romania. This one's from Africa. These two are also from Brazil. Um, December issue of CML's magazine, Missions, features an article about this boy from our school and his story, which I'm not even going to start because I already feel myself choking, but awful, awful things that he's been through. Uh, he came to us, he was an animal, literally. Um, a teacher kicked him out. He had to stay in my office because she just couldn't handle him anymore. Um, and, and now he's, he's a gentleman. He opens the doors for the ladies and says, please and excuse me. Um, and what gets to me the most is he loves to pray. He'll say, okay, let's pray for the food. Who's a volunteer? Before I even say that, he's already got his hand up. And he loves to end in Jesus' name, which is precious. He didn't even know who Jesus or Moses was when he started. And that was just in one school year. Uh, these are the older kids. Uh, this was a struggle to get them to dress this way. <laughs> Most of them never felt shoes around their feet. They used flip-flops or just went barefooted. Um, and so um, try to get them to wear slacks rather than jeans and shoes rather than sneakers, but it was a losing battle. So I figured that'll be for next year. Um, this girl here came to us with tremendous rage. She attacked one of our staff members halfway through the school year. She, that staff member still has the scars from her nails on her face, but she came to uh, saving faith and completely changed. She is the most docile girl in our school. She's a teacher's right arm. Just tremendous. But at the end of the school year, something happened that totally tore my heart apart. She found a guy on the bus going home, and uh, the third time that she met with the guy, she invited him to her apartment. The, Mother works three jobs, so there's no danger of the mother walking in on them. And she uh, lost her virginity, um, if she did not have that already. Um, and, and she changed. We saw that. There was a change. We didn't know what it was. So her teacher, who was very conservative, brought her to the office and said, something's going on. We're going to figure it out. And OK. Um, and in talking, we found out when it happened. And my heart just tore. I, I just, Lord, how can this be? 
She's saved. She, she, she showed such change, so much fruit. What happened here? And I just thought about it. I've been thinking about it since. It's been many months. And, and, and I just, it, it came to me. We had nowhere to send her. You see, Jesus Christ did not institute Christian schools. He instituted churches. He instituted a church. And we didn't have a good church to send her. So he sent her to this radical, charismatic church nearby. And, and she was getting absolutely no teaching there at all. And so she didn't get that nurturing and teaching that she needed. And, uh, and so that's raised the question, should we start an assembly there? But again, the same issue comes around. We need more workers. I certainly can't do that alone. We need more workers. Um, we also have a Christian day camp in the, um, in the summertime, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. This is awesome because we don't have to worry about teaching math, science, history. We can just do spiritual stuff and activities. And uh, parents love it because otherwise their kids would just be roaming the streets throughout the summer. Uh, these are our preschool kids. He's from Angola, Mozambique, and these three are from Brazil. This is the same boy that is featured in their article in uh, Missions Magazine. I'm going to skip this uh, page. It talks about other ministries that I'm, I'm doing. Um, this is the last slide. Please pray for Portugal. Okay? And you know what? Portugal is no more special than any other country. I realize that. My heart is for Portugal because God's given me that. But it's no more special. Christ loves the whole world. So I'm asking you to pray for Portugal as you pray for the whole world. Because the need is great everywhere. And God wants all to come to repentance. I believe that. Um, and so um, we need prayers for Portugal. But what we need the most in Portugal is for laborers. We need workers. Let me just tell you this. The Lord's work can be done without money. I remember a, a Christian uh, musician who's influenced me a lot. I'll tell you his name, Keith Green. Um, and I don't agree with all of his doctrine. But um, one of his songs, he's talking, he's singing as though he is Jesus. And in one of the lines it says, um, I don't need your money, I want your life. And that is so true. We don't need money to do the Lord's work. I visited Africa, they invited me to come and speak about Christian education. And I saw a Christian school happening, a huge Christian school happening under some palm trees. They didn't have money for a building, no problem. And it's the same here. I know we have code and stuff, but you know what? You can have, yeah, you can have meetings in people's homes. You can meet in a school. You can meet in a gymnasium. You don't need money to do God's work. You've got to get that out of your head. Um, we don't need a special program or, or big plans to do God's work. This might be a shocker to you. We don't even need a physical copy of the Bible to do God's work. Look at China. How many millions of Christians there have never seen one physical copy of the Bible? And yet they're on fire for the Lord, and they, they know the word or certain verses by heart, and they're sharing it with others, and more and more people are coming to Christ. The work of the Lord can be done without money, without programs, without materials, but the work of the Lord cannot be done without workers. It just can't. God has chosen. This is how it's going to be. We are the ones. We have been given the privilege of doing the work of the Lord, of expanding the kingdom of God. And if people don't do it, it won't get done. That's just the sad reality of it. And if you're saying, oh, sovereign God, excuse me, I'm quoting from Jesus. Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful. Pray the Father for more laborers, to send more laborers. Jesus said it. We need workers. When I started out in Portugal 18 years ago, there were six missionaries in the CML uh, missionary handbook, six missionaries in the Portugal page. Today, there's only one there. And that's not... Uh, atypical of many other countries. We need workers. 
I go around assemblies and I hear elders say this. Maybe it's not true here. I hope it's not. But I've heard in many other assemblies say, you know, people just don't volunteer like they used to. We want to do this or that activity, but we can't because there's no workers. We need workers. So I ask for you to pray for Portugal. I ask that you to pray for more workers. We need workers there desperately. I don't have staff to start next school year. Matter of fact, I don't have staff to start this last school year. We did not have school. Those kids went back to the streets. They went back to the public schools they came from. I have some kids who were sexually molested by their teachers in the public schools. And there is no justice in Portugal. No one's ever going to do anything about that. And it just broke my heart when I realized I couldn't start the next school year with any quality uh, because we just didn't have the workers to do it. It just, it just, I was, I think I was depressed. I don't know what depression composes of. I was certainly very, very discouraged for a few months. Um, some people tried to email me and I gave excuses. The reality is I was so discouraged I didn't want to even look at emails. I just couldn't stop thinking about those kids and where they were right now. I pray the Lord is protecting them. We need workers. Yeah, as you pray for workers, don't put that protective bubble around yourself. Oh Lord, send, send someone. <laughs> you know, include yourself. Um, include yourself when you pray for laborers. I've had people in some assemblies say, you know what, I've got a job and I've got a family, you know, but I'll pray. And I said, wait, 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 whoa. So what if you have a good job? So what if you've got a family? Pray for the Lord, to the Lord for more workers and include yourself. Be open. Open your heart to him. If he sends you, he will provide. You need to trust him. You need to have faith in him. The Lord needs workers. And, um, you know, woe are those who put the American lifestyle above the Lord's calling, above God's kingdom. Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. So uh, pray for Portugal. Pray for the world, um, this very dark and needy world. Pray for more workers. We need them. And you know what? The harvest is out there. It's ready. A lot of these kids came to Christ. They wouldn't have come to Christ if someone didn't go and, and work in that school and preach the gospel to them. Um, so the harvest is ready. There's people maybe in this neighborhood who, if you share the gospel with them, will probably come to Christ in short order. Pray the Lord for more workers. Pray for Portugal. Thank you for your time. Wow, I took a lot of your time. Uh, thank you for being so receptive and uh, for listening. I've got these cards here. Um, still learning what missionary does back here in the States. And um, do you want to end prayer? You want me to close in prayer? All right, let's, let's close in prayer. Shall we stand, please? Father and Lord, first of all, I want to thank you for the great sacrifice of your son on that cross, Father. We will never, ever understand how the great God, uh, whose universe is just a molecule in his hand, could come to this measly planet and die for us. We, we are amazed at your infinite and passionate love for us. Lord, I thank you that you do not leave us as orphans, that you have sent your Holy Spirit to abide in us and to walk with us and give us that comfort and company and strength that we all need. Lord, I thank you for this assembly, Father, for their willing hearts to stay here this entire time, um, to listen, to hear about how uh, the battlefront in Portugal is going. And Father, just ask that you may bless them, bless them with the privilege of your work, be it here or wherever, Lord. And Lord, I just ask that you might um, grow this assembly, Father, in numbers of people coming to know your, your son personally, as well as growing in, in the knowledge of your son, Lord. Lord, I just ask you to send everyone home safely and soundly, 
And uh, I thank you for this time we've had to spend together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.